All right, we are back. Uh, we do obituaries on occasion on this part of the show, and some prominent people have passed away we think we should comment upon. Our good friend Dr. Andy Jones noted in an email that uh, we surely were going to talk about the passing of Ingmar Bergman as well as Tom Snyder, and we will. But first, I thought I would note the passing of Laszlo Kovacs, the Hungarian-born cinematographer who distinguished himself on Easy Rider. Later became a frequent collaborator with director Peter Bogdanovich. Mr. Kovacs passed away last month at the age of 74 in his Beverly Hills home. He broke into the movie industry photographing Hell's Angels on Wheels and other low-budget exploitation movies about fast bikes and women. Given his expertise in this genre, director Dennis Hopper approached him about Easy Rider, a film about the search for America of two doomed motorcyclists. Mr. Kovacs distinguished himself with how he depicted a drug high, which he did through odd camera angles interspersed with flashing lights and jagged editing along with rock music. From that point, his work on the Cheapy Productions was behind him, and he went on to work with people like Bob Raffleson, Five Easy Pieces, Hal Ashby, Shampoo, Martin Scorsese, New York, New York, and Steven Spielberg, one of the several cinematographers on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're genuinely sad to note uh, on this program the passing of Bill Walsh, a football legend. Bill Walsh developed what's called the West Coast Offense, something which everybody in the NFL uses now based on the idea that uh, a short pass has a high completion rate and can allow you to play winning football. Before that, the game seemed to be dominated by three yards and a cloud of dust. The Walsh brand of uh, football was fun to watch and it was extremely successful. I should note that my parents were 49ers season ticket holders from 1955 on, and that in 1981, after the Niners had lost two of the first three games, I decided, you know, they're a young team with an interesting coach. I'm going to root for them the rest of this season. And the rest of that season led to the Super Bowl. And I have to admit, I was a football fan, at least a 49er fan, for about 15 years after that until I decided that uh, watching grown men bash each other around on Sunday afternoon was just taking way, way too much of my time. But uh, I sure had a lot of fun while it lasted, and, and, and Bill Walsh brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people that enjoy watching football. And oddly enough, he was the football coach at my high school. It was 10 years before I got to high school, but it is interesting to note that he was a great coach for the, the uh, NFL's San Francisco 49ers. He was a great college coach for the Stanford Cardinal, and he was also a great coach for the Washington High School Huskies. We're also sad to note the passing of uh, Tom Snyder, a legend of late-night television. Among his fans was David Letterman, who helped pave the way for Mr. Snyder's return to late-night television in the 1990s, uh, said Dave Letterman. Tom was the very thing that all broadcasters long to be, compelling. Whether he was interviewing politicians, authors, actors, or musicians, Tom was always the real reason to watch. In the early 70s, Tom Snyder was a top-rated evening news anchor in Los Angeles, but he made the transition to late-night television as host of The Tomorrow Show, which ran in the time slot after uh, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. That was up until 1982. Said Snyder, I told network executives in the beginning, don't put me in a monkey suit, don't put me in front of a band, I'm a newsman, I don't tell jokes, I just talk about issues. Wrote one television critic, Tom could be sweet and ingenuous one moment, relentlessly probing the next. As for criticism of his sometimes arrogant on-camera demeanor, Snyder told the New York Times in 1977, I'm not just there as a piece of wood, 
for people to talk to. I'm a human being. I have opinions and biases and beliefs and standards, and I have to interject them into the program. Otherwise, we might as well have an empty chair and give the guests a list of written questions and let them answer them. Tom Snyder, he was our kind of guy. Although, we do like to tell jokes. Also passing away last month was Ingmar Bergman, the celebrated film director. More properly, I guess you could say he was an Academy Award-winning Swedish writer-slash-director. His name has come to define a genre of stark movies about the human condition. He made such films as The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, and Persona, all of which I'm rather chagrined to admit I have not seen. His style of films were intensely personal. Desire and suffering dominated the characters' lives, and he first gained worldwide attention in the early 1950s, the time when many American filmmakers were making uh, soapy dramas or promoting gimmicks like Smellovision. Writing in uh, the Washington Post, Adam Bernstein noted that uh, Bergman once said, The people in my films are exactly like myself, creatures of instinct, of rather poor intellectual capacity, who at best only think while they're talking. Wrote The Economist, Critics wondered whether there was a general message in his films. Bergman sometimes denied that he had one, yet he usually found a saving moment in the misery, a selfless communication in words or gesture between two human beings. At the end of Wild Strawberries, the the hero, an aged professor, is belatedly reconciled with his family and his past. As the scene was filmed, Bergman noted, the old actor's face shone with secret of light as if reflected from another reality. That secret of light or hidden love was just what the director had been searching for. All right, and I think uh, no, uh, no commentary this week would be complete without mentioning Barry Bonds. It's been uh, clear for some time it was only a matter of when, as regards Hank Aaron's all-time record. But this issue of, of cheating and using uh, performance-enhancing substances uh, is really not going to go away. And the question is, uh, you know, at some point uh, when these investigations are concluded, what are they going to do with Barry Bonds? And speaking of illegal substances, on a follow-up on our story not too long ago about Sylvester Stallone getting busted by the authorities down in Australia uh, carrying growth hormone into the country... We were shocked to see a picture of Sly uh, from Newsweek. It was dated uh, May 25th. I hadn't seen a picture of him in quite a while. And boy, he does look like he is on growth hormone. His head seems to have gotten rather fat in, in the literal sense. Chris, we like, in the, in, the, in the midst of all this, his lawyer's explanation for the growth hormone. He needed it for medical reasons. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you as a physician, he did not. <laughs> Somewhat suspicious as well was the fact that he was carrying 52 vials with him when he was busted. And again, you have to love his excuse. It was just a minor misunderstanding. I just under didn't understand some of the rules here. No, we guess he didn't. You know, we're kind of sorry we missed uh, the appearance last month here at the, uh, the California Assembly of, of Sly Stallone, Bob Barker, Joe Weider, and the governor visiting the state senate. Wrote uh, Peter Hecht in The Buzz in the Sacramento Bee. Apparently the, the senators were giddy trying to decide which celebrity to approach for a handshake and photograph. Senate President Pro Tem Don Parada and Assembly Speaker Fabian Nunez were quoted as saying the choice was pretty clear. Stallone. Reportedly upon spying the Rocky star, Parada directed his, <laughs> directed his attention over to one of my countrymen, a reference to their shared Italian-American heritage. We should note that Arnold and, and Sly Stallone were on hand to celebrate 
a Senate resolution for Joe Weider, the bodybuilding magazine magnate who helped launch Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. I really would have liked to have seen this because, you know, when you see pictures of, 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 of Governor Schwarzenegger and Sly Stallone, former business partners, standing together, the governor just towers over Stallone. And yet, I stood next to the governor. He's about 5'10", which means Sylvester Stallone must be 5'5 or 5'6". If you know the answer of the true heights of these gentlemen, please drop an email to info at Radio Parallax. Inquiring minds want to know. Of course, we also liken the same The Buzz column, the note that in the California Republican Assembly, one of the harshest insults one can deliver is to call someone a nanny. These good conservatives know what that means. A politician who views government as a babysitter. So the assembly was turning on five of its own Republicans in the legislature. On the website, the Republican Assembly announced a vote to answer the question, who is your GOP nanny? Apparently, among other things, it took Senator Tom Harmon... Republican Huntington Beach to task for supporting required vaccinations to prevent a cervical cancer linked to a sexually transmitted virus. You know, I don't know what it is with these conservatives. If you can prevent cervical cancer, prevent cervical cancer by giving young women vaccinations against human papillomavirus, doesn't it make sense to do so? I mean, should we give nanny awards to people that advocate giving you a shot for tetanus? Because after all, tetanus has always been part of life. You step on a rusty nail, you die of lockjaw. What are you, being a baby about it? <laughs> I don't know. I'm certainly not against all Republicans, but uh, that, this sort of antics reminds me of what Woodrow Wilson once said about Republicans. He said, a Republican is a man who sits and thinks. Mostly sits. One thing about having a radio show, people like to help out. They like to pitch ideas that they think might make for some good programming. And uh, a friend of mine recently suggested that uh, we may want to cover the end of The Sopranos. There was a lot of ink being spilled about how that, uh, that popular television program ended. But personally, I could not possibly have cared less. But uh, when, uh, when my friends started pitching a little bit more about why we should do it, he kind of won me over. So... I'd like to introduce to uh, the Radio Parallax listeners our newest correspondent from Las Vegas. This would be Dr. Sam. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Sam. Hello, Doug. Nice to be here with you. In talking to you about uh, this whole Sopranos thing, I was surprised to learn that you had perhaps some insights as to these sorts of individuals relating to Las Vegas. Is that true? Yes, yes. Yes, I do. I, uh, I came to Las Vegas and uh, yes, I am from an Italian-American family, first generation, and not only that, I studied medicine in Italy, and uh, there were some folks that uh, needed a doctor out here uh, of Italian-American persuasion, and uh, they were very fussy. These folks were very fussy about uh, who they went to. So yes, I, I did have some exposure to uh, uh, things very, very similar to the, what went on in The Sopranos, and I, I, I'd like to point out real quickly that... Uh, the Sopranos had to have um, very, very first-hand information because things came out on that show that no one, no one in the movie business would know about generally. They'd have to be talking to someone that was in that lifestyle. Now, Dr. Sam, do you say that because of things you hear in Las Vegas? Well, just things that I know occur. Um, yes, things I hear and things I've seen. And, things, and, and attitudes that they have 
uh, it's very difficult. It would have been very difficult for them to hit it right every time um, on the show, and uh, unless they had insights, uh, really a, 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 someone that really uh, was exposed to that life, uh, giving them their uh, their guidance and information. Uh, All right. Uh, one such thing, real quick, was when uh, Junior's godfather, the fellow who baptized him or confirmed him, was acting acting up and. And Big Tony went to the Godfather and said, "Hey, look, you're his Godfather. It's your job to whip him into shape." Now that's no one outside of the clan knows that that we do that. That the Godfathers <laughs> at times take the place of the dad in helping the, the young boy. Yeah, but but, but Doctor Sam, I, I hear that like that whole Godfather thing was invented by Mario Puzo. That the that the mob mobsters liked the term so much they then adopted it. The, the term wasn't Godfather. It started out to be Gumbada. Okay, so. Uh, no, I'm afraid that Mario Puzo uh, was immersed because uh, there again, uh, with all the literary uh, uh, literary privilege that they're, they're entitled to, too much went on in that movie for him not to know or have been exposed to some of that uh, that stuff. Uh, you know, uh, I, I just remember one instance uh, real quick where I mentioned to you where um, we were. I had one of these patients. Uh, in the hospital that needed a colonoscopy, you know, that's that unpleasant test. Yes. And uh, I called in a gastroenterologist, and we were in the middle of the colonoscopy, and there were helicopters flying around the uh, hospital, and he looked up, and he says, Jesus, what, I wonder what's going on out there. I said, well, uh, unbeknownst to you, you have a sort of an infamous patient lying here on this table. Well, all the blood drained out of this doctor's face because he knew exactly what I meant. So that was just one Kind of. Was it? Was he? Did, did he? Did he have a little performance anxiety at that moment, making sure he was? Uh, yes, he did. Because <laughs> then he realized. Because then he realized why there were people, uh, reporters standing at all, all the exits. Let's talk about it. I didn't. I don't watch The Sopranos. I never watched yeah. The Sopranos. I couldn't care less about The Sopranos. But I guess the ending had everybody all a buzz. So what happened? Well, what happened was was what would have happened if it was a true story. Um, you know, they did, he didn't Hollywoodize it. Um, there was a, a gang war going on, and Tony, uh, with the big cheese there, was under under the gun, and it looked as though uh, this was going to be the end of Tony and his family. And uh, what happened was that the, they, they managed to uh, eliminate the head of the uh, opposing family, and the final scene that you see is... The, his uh, Tony Soprano and his immediate family's wife and his kids converging on a restaurant for dinner, and he's eating his spaghetti, and these people are getting shot in the street, and he's sipping on a glass of wine, and people are getting shot in the street. And what it's implying is that, and life will continue just as before. Our group will continue. The implication wasn't that he himself was killed. No. The implication was, um, first of all, uh, it wasn't implied. The other gangster did get shot. They tried to make it look as though someone was going to come into that restaurant at any time and shoot him, okay, eliminate him. But that didn't happen. And, and what, it, what it showed was this is, this, this is the type of life, okay, that uh, he either gets the other guy and survives or the other guy gets him. So apparently he got the other guy and he's in the restaurant. And it still looks tenuous, as, as would be in real life, they wanted to see some fantastic ending, and what it did, what it said was, Tony Soprano will be back. And so will Dr. Sam, our Las Vegas correspondent. Sam, we appreciate your uh, talking to us, and we will return to you when we need some information from what's going on in Vegas, America's fastest-growing city. I wish you would.
And we will. It's been fun, Doc. All right. All right. And our final note of the day, we have a misplaced obituary, which we're going to place at the end of the program. Uh, and note the passing of songwriter Ron Miller. Mr. Miller started his professional career in the music business in the 1960s and was spotted by Motown Records founder Barry Gordy, who saw him performing at a piano bar. He invited him to Detroit to become one of Motown's first songwriters and record producers. Before meeting Gordy at the piano bar, Mr. Miller had made ends meet by selling washing machines and taking odd jobs. He had quite a number of hits, perhaps uh, among the most notable were Touch Me in the Morning, which became a very big hit for Diana Ross in 1973, and surely his greatest hit, For Once in My Life, written with Orlando Murden. It's one of the most recorded songs in history with more than 270 versions. A rendition by Tony Bennett and Stevie Wonder won a Grammy this year for a duet. Said Miller's daughter, my father will be reborn every time someone sings one of his songs. When they feel joy or sadness or any emotion, that will be my dad and his words. And we thought we would note the passing of Ron Miller last because it will allow us to go out with, a, with the Stevie Wonder version, my personal favorite of, For Once in My Life. Our thanks to Professor Matthew Bishop as well as Dr. Sam Russo for today's program. We'll be talking more about this issue of voting machines, hopefully with Secretary of State Deborah Bowen on next week's program. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Won't desert me I'm not alone now